are about those who would with intent and secrecy and deception lead us astray. God safeguard us. Use these words to safeguard us. And to the extent that we have fallen into their ways, God, set us free today. We ask this in Christ for his name's sake. Amen. So uh, there's a recent New York Times article that pointed out that every year the average American eats 33 pounds of cheese, which I personally am okay with. And... (laughs) I love cheese, and 70 pounds of sugar. On average, 11% of our diet comes from saturated fats. Every day we eat 8,500 milligrams of salt. That's four whopping teaspoons of salt. And in his book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, Michael Moss shows that during the past two decades, some of America's largest food producers have carefully studied how to help us crave all this junk food. For example, some of the food industry's biggest names, including Campbell's Soup and General Foods, Kraft, PepsiCo, Cadbury, they hire crave consultants. These are scientists who help them determine our bliss points, the point where food companies can optimize our cravings. Or as another example, Frito-Lay, who's the maker of Lay's potato chips and the 21 varieties of Cheetos, Your mouths are watering already, aren't they? They operate a research complex near Dallas that at one time employed nearly 500 chemists, psychologists, and technicians. They spent up to $30 million a year to find the bliss point of their junk foods. One food scientist called Cheetos one of the most marvelously constructed foods on the planet in terms of pure pleasure. Cheetos has what's called vanishing caloric density. In other words, because it melts down quickly, your brain thinks there are no calories in it, and you think you can just keep eating Cheetos forever. Amen, right? The idea that tens of millions of dollars are being spent to determine our bliss point and to optimize our cravings is a little bit unnerving. It's kind of like someone is building a giant mousetrap and they're putting Cheetos in it just for us, right? Even more unnerving than that would be someone trying to manipulate our spiritual lives like that. Spending millions, perhaps, to optimize the cravings of our souls and discover our spiritual bliss points so they can lead us down a particular path. Peter warns us against that very thing in the passage that Watson just read for us that we'll look at today, 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, 
bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So Peter is beyond clear here. False teachers will be found amongst the church, be found amongst us. And you hear the echoes of Jesus' own warnings here. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And again, he said, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. The Apostle Paul chimes in as well. He says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond, correspond to their deeds. So uh, a seminary professor um, had this practice that he did at the beginning of the semester. He would take his class and they would work together on one major project during the semester in which they would move systematically through the New Testament and determine how many times each area of teaching was addressed in the New Testament. Their goal was to find what is the preeminent thing that's emphasized more than any other thing in the New Testament. And when they completed the project, they were shocked to see that warning against false doctrine is emphasized more than any other thing in the New Testament. Consider Exhibit 1. This is, this is from a pastor who says, existence is not only good, it is holy. Seeing life in the broadest possible context requires the use of symbols. Symbolic thinking leads to God consciousness, for it opens the ways of thinking in interconnected patterns. Literal thinking, on the other hand, leads to isolation, away from spirituality, away from community, for it does not utilize the full range of skills needed to practice stewardship of the earth. When abortion is viewed as a single act, as the destruction of a human life, it fails to encompass the full range of symbols contained in the events surrounding the pregnancy and their implications for building a godlike world. I'm going to put the rest on the screen so you can track with me closely. For the literal thinker, abortion is the death of a person, a preborn baby. For the spiritual person, in full compassionate touch with the symbols of human experience, abortion is part of God's creation. Even if the person views abortion as a death, death is part of creation and brings about the possibility of new life. The ending of pregnancy in this context is to continue the cycle of regenerative life, for all molecular structures are part of creation and do not end. That was by a Christian pastor. Chapter 2 of 2 Peter in its entirety, is a screed against false teachers who've made their way and are making their way into the church. And po the point of Peter's screed against these false teachers is that we would take pains, great pains, to avoid their influence, their teaching. So, who are these people, right? Who are these false teachers? Here are some of the more vivid descriptions of them from our chapter, chapter 2 of 2 Peter. They are among us. They are amongst God's people. They are sitting at our feasts while they secretly teach heresy, blaspheming God in his way. They deny the master, Jesus, who bought them. 
They urge sensuality upon many, indulging in the lust of defiling passion in broad daylight, eyes full of adultery. They despise authority and are bold and willful, speaking loud boasts of folly. They are blots and blemishes, the opposite of spotless and blameless. They have hearts trained in greed, loving gain gotten from wrongdoing. They are insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls as they forsake the right way and lead others astray, enticing them by sensual passions of the flesh. They promise freedom but are themselves enslaved to corruption. Having known of Jesus but now denying him, their state now is worse than at first. They're like a dog that returns to its vomit, like a sow who after washing returns to wallow in the mud. That is quite a list. You get the idea that Peter doesn't have much use for these people? You know? And his point is, neither should you. Okay? There are, that rise to the surface in here, perhaps three main areas of concern that Peter has about these teachers, about their lives, and about us being seduced to follow them. We'll look at those three today, but... If these mark the leaders of a church that you are considering being part of, don't do it. Run away. Okay? It's interesting. Peter focuses here not just on aberrant doctrine, but he focuses on their wayward lives, which are the product of aberrant doctrine. So here are those three large categories that seems to be at the top of his list. First, are they proud? Are they arrogant? Peter draws out this trait in verse 10. He says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold, willful, They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Bold and willful, it says. They despise authority. New Testament professor Tom Schreiner says you could render bold and willful boldly arrogant. So much so that they blaspheme the glorious ones, it says. Now, that's a puzzling idea. Most likely it's They blaspheme the fallen angels that he's talked about previously. Something that stronger, unfallen, good angels won't even do. Professor Schreiner explains it this way. He says, perhaps the false teachers did not tremble before the fallen angels because they disbelieved in their existence. That would fit nicely with their skeptical worldview they adopted about the coming of the Lord. Or, Or they may have ridiculed any idea that human beings should be frightened about the power of spiritual beings. But their arrogance leads them there. Leaders who follow Jesus must be humble or they, by their arrogant attitudes, deny the master who bought them. You know, you can, you can sense pride in a leader. You know what I mean? You ever smell it? You ever sense it? As Pastor Richard Baxter said long ago, when pride has written the sermon, it goes with us to the pulpit. And you can tell. And you should should be on your guard concerning this. 
In his book, Flight 232, A Story of Disaster and Survival, uh, Lawrence Gonzalez tells the story of United Airlines Flight 232, crashed in Iowa uh, back in 1989, and in all, 112 people lost their lives. But the losses could have been much worse if United Airlines hadn't learned some crucial lessons from an earlier tragedy. And that earlier crash occurred on December 28, 1978. United Flight 173 was flying from New York to Portland um, when it went down in a wooded suburb six miles from the airport. The plane had a malfunction of the landing gear on approach, so the captain began circling the area to make sure that the gear was down. Preoccupied with his landing gear, the captain ignored the crew's warning that fuel was low. And when the engines began quitting, he knew too late what his mistake was, and the plane crashed, killing 10 passengers and seriously wounding 23 on board. And Gonzalez writes about that previous incident, and he says, Those at United Airlines and the National Transportation Safety Board believe that the military backgrounds of most airline pilots at the time contributed to the crash. The captain of the ship was supreme. And the other members of the crew were expected to defer to him and keep their mouths shut. It was a military tradition going back hundreds of years. This crash had a direct bearing on the fate of United Flight 232 because after the crash of United Flight 173, the safety board recommended retraining flight crews in what came to be known as cockpit resource management. United Airlines pioneered the training in which captains were taught to listen to their crews. And the members of their crews were taught to be assertive if they thought that a hazardous condition was developing. And so leaders in the church must lead with humility, not arrogance. Jesus said, if you want to be first, you must be last and become the servant of all. And surely that must involve listening to your crew. Author Francis Chan put it this way, it's not your party. It's God's. And you should sense that from Christian leaders. It should obviously not be their party. They should be in evident, glad, deep submission to God and his glory, considering others more important than themselves, like Jesus. If your leaders are proud, beware. Peter's saying, beware. Second trait that marked these false teachers is their sensuality. Verse 2, he says, many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar tells us about a study a number of years back conducted by Professor Howard Hendricks of 246 Christian men in full-time Christian ministry, pastors. He says, Professor Hendricks was able to find nearly 250 men who without a doubt were committed to Jesus Christ, yet the thing they had in common is that within 24 months of each other, they got involved in sexual immorality. After interviewing each man, Dr. Hendricks discovered a number of correlations between all 246 men. One, none were involved in any kind of personal group. None. They skipped small group. They didn't need it. Two, each had, in, each had ceased to invest in a daily personal time of prayer, scripture reading, and worship. 
And lastly, without exception, each of the 246 had been convinced that moral failure will never happen to me. How many times have we seen Christian leaders fall morally, sensually, and the way of truth is blasphemed because of it? Countless times. Too many times. And here's the latest. The Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, the first woman to lead Manhattan's famed Riverside Church, lost her lofty post amid complaints that she brought ministers and a congregant on a sex toy shopping spree and then gave one of them an unwanted birthday gift from the store. This is a pastor. It's all over the news. You probably saw it. The way of truth is mocked as a result. And Peter drives this home repeatedly. He said it in verse 2. He says in verse 10, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Verse 13 and 14, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They, for sin rather. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Professor Douglas Moo points out that greed need not relate only to money. It can also denote the desire for more sexual pleasure or power or food or a number of things. So the scriptures say flee sexual immorality, not flirt with it. And some of you have a kind of spidey sense about these things. And you've sensed it around leaders who you do not feel safe around. And if your spidey sense goes off around church leaders, beware, be very wary. Peter is warning you, there are, there are men and women like this in the church. Beware. Don't follow their leadership. Be they proud or be they sensual. And thirdly, he says, be they greedy. Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Now in verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed. And then in verse 15, it says, they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Do your leaders, do your church leaders show signs of greed? Again, greed can be more about more, about more than money and stuff, but the focus here is probably on money and stuff. We live in an age where this madness is in the air that we breathe, right? Pastor Scott Wenig writes that, did you know that in the 1970s there were few storage units in the United States, but now there are more storage units than all the McDonald's, Subways, and Starbucks stores combined? There are far more storage units in the U.S. than there are post offices. There are 10,000 storage units worldwide outside of the U.S., but over 53,000 in the U.S., it's the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate market and it generates $24 billion a year in revenue. You know, there are far more scientists holed up in laboratories trying to optimize your cravings and target 
your bliss points in this matter of your money and your stuff than are focused on your taste buds. This is the air we breathe. And Christian leaders breathe it too. Some of them teach it as virtue. It's called prosperity theology or the health and wealth gospel. And no one that I have encountered peels the veneer off of this false teaching with gusto like Pastor John Piper. Um, There's an article on his website, and this is the title of it, Why I Abominate the Prosperity Gospel. Abominate, right? And in that article, let me just read to you what he says. He said, these prosperity preachers just don't talk to Americans who are already fairly well off and try to help them, you know, become a little more rich. They get on their jets, their personal jets, and they fly to Africa or the Philippines, and they land, and they gather a stadium full of 100,000 desperately poor people and tell them if they will believe in Jesus, they'll get rich, and all their needs will be met, and their wives won't have miscarriages. (sighs) Anymore. Blah, blah, blah. And when they get on their jet with their pockets full and go home, he says, that is wicked. He says, normal Christianity is pain. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing is the pattern. Prosperity preachers do not prepare new converts in third world countries to endure the realities of what it will cost them to be a Christian. Here's another reason. He says there are 1,568 or so as we talk, people, people groups in the world out of 13,000 that don't even have missionaries engaging them and therefore everybody in them is without hope. Most of these 1,500 people groups are in very dangerous places, meaning if you go there, your kids might either get disease or, and die or your wife might be captured and raped or your family might be butchered and killed. Who's going to go? We have to go. Jesus said, make disciples of every people group, not just the easy ones, not just the comfortable ones. Who's going to go? The product of prosperity preachers? I don't think so. The people that are going to go are the people that have been taught that to follow Christ is to suffer, and it is brief. It is only 80 years, and then comes heaven. And so for all those reasons and more, it's a tragic thing that one of our greatest exports of America is the prosperity gospel. People are being destroyed by it. Christians are being weakened by it. God is being dishonored by it, and souls are perishing because of it, and a lot of guys are getting rich on it. The wisest man who ever lived said this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You you can't serve God and money. And again, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard to be rich and follow Jesus. It's hard to be rich and be a faithful pastor. And if you love money, it's impossible to be a faithful pastor. That's why Peter wrote two pastors in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, 
but eagerly. So don't listen to pastors that are telling you to accrue wealth and the status that comes with it to build bigger and bigger barns. If their message is more about gain than about generosity, beware. Beware beware of pastors who leer after women or who have no accountability in their lives. Beware. Don't watch their TV shows or YouTube videos. Don't buy their books. And for sure, don't attend their churches. Here's why. They are facing terrifying judgment. He says right out of the box, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Peter says in our passage, they're facing a swift destruction that they brought on themselves. They are facing active condemnation and judgment. If God did not spare angels, Peter says, if he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, if he did not spare the world under the flood, then these false teachers will be kept under punishment until the day of judgment. They'll be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as wages for their wrongs. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. Beware, he says. Stay far, far away from these teachers because if you follow them and their practices, you could face this judgment too. And I know it's, it's tempting to think, but I'm here. I'm in church. This is a safe zone, right? Um, it's my get-out-of-judgment-free card. I'm in church. But listen to how Peter closes this chapter. It's sobering. Listen to it closely. He says in verse 20, For if, he's writing about the teachers again, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. See, that's terrifying. That should be terrifying to you to read. It should be. That's the idea. These teachers had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? They were among the church. They knew the truth about Jesus. And then they went back into pride and sensuality and greed once again. And he says it's worse for them than it was before they ever knew about Jesus at all. So just let that sit for a minute. Church people are not safe from judgment. Not if you follow the lives of these teachers and turn away from Christ and his ways at some point. The point is weighty. To willfully turn away from the truth brings terrible judgment with it. Now, don't get lost in the weeds. It's not that they lost their salvation. It's that that their life proves that salvation was never really theirs. 
John wrote about it in his letters we, we studied recently. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He's writing about false teachers. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And then he writes this assurance just a little bit before that. He says, whoever says I know him, Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in, truly, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And, and similarly, in 2 Peter 1, Peter grants us this, this assurance. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The idea is you'll never fall away from, from the faith into unbelief but of these false teachers and those who follow their ways he writes this what the true proverb says has happened to them the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire okay so for a Jewish man to call somebody a dog or a sow. This is so not a compliment, right? It is not. Uh, the dog was not the happy family pet. It was a stray, wild carnivore um, that was unclean, as were um, hogs. They were unclean animals. His point is they were offensive to God and they still are. You can dress your dog up in that little doggy sweater, but it's liable to go back and eat its own vomit, you know? Still a dog. And you can wash that pig and groom her and put a bow in her hair, and she's probably still going to return to the mud. So he says, don't follow these teachers who live like this who teach like this, don't watch their videos, don't read their blogs, don't buy their books. And definitely don't go to the churches they lead or their judgment could become yours. There's one last thing. And please don't miss this. Peter says it very clearly. These teachers, they are stalking you. Look again at verse 2 and 3. Many will follow their sensuality. Many. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Many will follow. Many will be exploited. Don't you be among them. Okay? Verse 18, he says it again. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. He is saying here that they prey upon new believers who are not grounded well in their faith and they entice them into sexual sin. 
In the midst of that, verse 14, he says that they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. So yeah, it helps to be steady, right? And by that, I take it to mean that you're solidly grounded in your faith. And the Apostle Paul describes what that's like. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So I'd say read books by men and women of good repute that match well the scriptures in their fullness, not your own desires or the latest cultural wave. Read their blogs. Listen to their sermons. And here at North Wake, um, bang the drum again. Go to, go to the life change classes we offer. Okay. Um, you know, I trust these teachers. I do. My only regret is that I cannot go to those classes because I work Sundays. Um, <laughs> so, hey, take that heaven class. It is getting rave reviews, and the teachers are our best. Okay. Get in on the Psalms class. My gosh, one of the guys who's teaching got his doctorate in the Psalms. And there's one for ladies, too, and are, they're better. Dig into Romans. This class, you get to sit there and actually open your Bible, you study it on your own, and then you talk about it with the people around your table. You actually get to study the Bible under the guidance of a really skilled teacher. Take the counseling class and learn how to counsel a friend in need of Christ's mercy. says they entice unsteady souls. Is that you? Are you an unsteady soul? Let us steady you up. Okay. Let us help you. David Mathis writes that the question is not whether you ever hear the voice of false teachers. You do, probably every day. The question is whether you can discern which messages are false. If you watch any television, he says, listen to any radio or podcast, keep up on the news or interact at depth with just about anyone in modern society, you are being exposed to some form of false teaching every time. If you cannot identify any voices you hear as false, it's not because you aren't being exposed, but because you're falling for it in some way. He says, for most of church history, it took extraordinary energy and effort to influence the masses. Messages had to be copied by hand, and teachers had to travel by foot or horseback. There were no cars or airplanes, no printing presses, websites, or Facebook pages. But today, he says, just about every false teacher has a Twitter account. I don't have a Twitter account, just for what it's worth. <laughs> Take me out of that category. You know, it's a spirit, spiritually dangerous world out there, okay? Always has been. We're reading a 2,000-year-old letter, and it's like it was written just for us, isn't it? 
but our hope is in Christ. Look, look at verse 9 with me as we close. After he's spoken about how God judged the wicked but rescued Lot and Noah, Peter says this, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. What a, what a beautiful hope. For those of you who are facing trials, will you trust him with your trials and go nowhere else but him first? The trials that feel like they're about to swallow you up alive, he knows how to rescue you. Trust him. Cast those great cares on him because you know how much he cares for you. Will you let Jesus rescue you from the greatest of all trials, which is the judgment of God. You know, our sins carry a heavy price before a holy God. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 6. He says that the wages of our sin, it's death. That's the price of sin. But listen to the rest of that verse. It's beautiful. He says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus' death on the cross was an act of loving rescue from the greatest trial that anyone will ever face, the judgment of God upon our sins. And so I wonder, will you welcome that rescue and trust Christ to be your sin bearer and savior this morning? You can. You just confess your sins and cry out to Christ. Rescue me, Jesus from the trial that waits, that I would be judged for my sin. I don't want to bear my sin anymore. Now, um, we have the best teachers I know of any church anywhere on the planet. I am not exaggerating. I mean, I look out here and, and there are way better teachers than me sitting all around you. But we are not perfect teachers. And we struggle with pride and sensuality and greed because we breathe the same air you breathe. And so I'm wondering this morning if we could close with the church praying for our teachers. Um, that, that our teachers would be kept safe so that this would be a safe place for whoever comes in the door, for you. And so, um, if, if the way you serve our church is teaching, you could, be a, you could be a regular teacher in our children's ministry or in our, with our youth or in our life change classes or in small groups, and I'm realizing here I'm running the risk of emptying every seat in the church at this point. But if you're a teacher, if that's the way you serve our church, one of the, one of the big ways you serve our church, I'm going to ask you to, in a minute, just come down front and you can stand around here, however that works. Or you can kneel if you want. And then I'm going to ask the rest of the church to stand. And we want to pray for you. Um, that God would safeguard you and through you safeguard us. So, church, let's all stand together. And if you're a teacher at North Wake, would you make your way down here? You're welcome to kneel along the steps or if you want to stand, if that's more comfortable for you. If you're one of our teachers, would you come down, please? We want to pray for you.
All right, church, let's pray. Let's pray. So I'm surrounded by amazing teachers. We are surrounded by amazing teachers. And oh, how our kids are blessed. How our students are blessed. How we are blessed. And yet, Lord, the evil one is searching for someone to devour. He would devour these teachers. He would lead them in the way of pride, even about their teaching, or sensuality, or, or greed. Lord, safeguard them. Protect them. Draw them near to Jesus. Rescue them from the trials and temptations that they face. And Lord, use them greatly for your name's sake. We thank you for them. We commit them to your care and we ask this in Christ's great name. Amen.